No? She's calling you out, David, right here in front of everyone. She's gonna, he's going to make his case. You're going to lose. We cover that in marriage counseling, right? Or you cover that. So. Hey, we want to... To, to, we like to do some giveaways at the City Life Church every week. And so we're going to launch back into our, our series tonight, 50-Day People, talking about what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a modern-day world. Pentecost, 50, 50 days. It was the feast that happened 50 days after Passover. That's where the, we get that word from, 50-Day People, the idea for the, the sermon series. So to get us thinking along the right direction, I've, I've got some giveaways, got some giveaways here. The, the first one I want to do is, uh, is, is Josh Baer. Josh and Heather go to our church. He's a good friend of, of this gentleman, Chad Varga, who was a star at, uh, at, at Pitt in uh, basketball, went on to play in the NBA, and he wrote this book about his story, uh, his God story. I'm about halfway through it. It's an amazing story. So I'm going to do this. I've got one of Laura Nowotny's books, and then I've got a, uh, who had a book signing today, right? Did Laura have a book signing today? Come on, come on. And I got a Starbucks gift card. So we're going to do three. So this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to give you a quote. I'm a movie guy, all right? So there's, I have quotables from, from movies, and I use them in real-life context. You with me? So I'm using them all the time, texting them, saying things. Somebody asked me a question. So, so this, is my first, this is the one that I use the most. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. So there's a group of criminals standing together, and they're making a decision about whether or not they're going to go rob a bank. I don't get to say that too often in a pulpit, right? So they're making a decision about whether they're going to go rob the bank, and the boss of the crew asks the one guy, are you with us? And he says, I roll with you, Neil. Anybody? Oh, Denise Thomason. Anybody else? Uh, Kevin Tully? The movie Heat. Come on, that's it. So Vanessa's always saying, hey, do you want to go out to dinner? I say, hey, I roll with you, Neil, right? So that's my, my standard reply. I roll with you. All right, here's the next one. You ready for the next one? So this, I'm going to give you, this is Lauren Awani's book. Sorry, these are all, I don't have any chick flick quotes. Sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. You would not want me giving you chick flick quotes from your from your pastor on Saturday night. All right, so the next one is from the, uh, the Tom Clancy series, right? Jack Ryan is the character, started with the hunt for Red October. And so this is from one of those. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but, but they're, there's a, a military unit. They're, 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 uh, oh, here's your word that you might have to look up. They're, they're operating surreptitiously in a foreign company. Is that good? Good word, surreptitiously. So, so, so they, they plant the bomb in there, and they're waiting for orders to detonate. And this is their code, right? Because you've got to speak in code when the military. The chicken is in the pot. I repeat, the chicken is in the pot. Anybody know that one? Nick? Clear and present danger. Come on. Nice, nice. So when Vanessa gives me jobs to do, right? Anybody here get jobs? You should. If you're not giving your husband jobs, we'd like to talk to you after the service because he's willing to do it. So when she gives me errands to run, I'm on the way back from the grocery store with the milk and the bread, right? I, I text her, the chicken is in the pot, right? I've done what I'm supposed to do. All right. All right, the last one. I'm going to reach Ray back to another generation, right? Okay, you ready? Maybe some youth culture will, will get this one. I can't eat another bite. Anybody know that one? All right, come on. It's British. It's English. I can't. All right, let me, let me give you another quote from another. Uh, whose Gil has it? The Meaning of Life from Monty Python. There it is. Come on. There it is, right? And then the waiter comes in and says, it's only a small wafer. And then the rest of the, then the scene that comes next, you shouldn't see it. It's inappropriate. Those are my pre-Christ days. Pre-Christ days. I didn't watch that on vacation. Now you, me, and Lancelot, we will jump out of the rabbit and storm the castle. Right? Anybody? Okay. All right. All right. Your father was a hamster and your mother smelled of elderberry. Right? That's the French guys. I like that part, especially. All right. All right, I'm going to leave the Monty, in Jesus' name, I'm going to deliver myself from Monty Python right now. In Jesus' name. Let me share this with you. You might find this shocking. We're going to dig into this, probably over the next few weeks. We'll see. Definitely tonight and next weekend. You and I were made to be greedy. Hence the, the quote from, from Monty Python. You and I were made to be greedy, gluttonous, avarice, and insatiable. Somebody visiting said, I just found my church right here, right? I'm on my way to Golden Corral as soon as the service is over. But that's not the kind of 
gluttony we're talking about. God created you and I with a sacred capacity to never be full, to never be satisfied. We were not made to be measured. We have been divinely engineered for excess. Let me say that last part again. You and I, we were not made to be measured. We have been divinely engineered for excess, for excess. So, so, so let me just ask you, how many people here would say at some point in your life, you know what, God, I've just had enough of your love. I've got all that I need. What, whatever love you had remaining for me, you can just give it to Warren. The rest of my portion of love, just, just give it to somebody else, right? How, how many people here that you have already come to a place, show of hands, already come to a place in your life where you say, God, I'm just, I'm, I'm full of your promises. I don't need any more promises from you, right? Who here? Who here has the freedom to say that? Who, who here can ever imagine a situation and a circumstance in your life where you would step into a place of worship just like we did tonight and just say, God, you know what? I don't need any more of your grace for the rest of my life. I just, I don't, I don't need it. I'm full of your grace and I don't need any more. There is a part of you and a part of me that God created for excess, created for greed. Not in the unhealthy ways as we're going to see that we so often pursue them in our humanity. But God gave you this capacity. And that's why all the other excesses, some that we're going to talk about tonight, are so devastating to God. Break God's heart because it's not the fact that he is upset with us, that we are expressing our capacity for excess is that we're doing it in the wrong ways. And when we give ourselves to excess over here, we're robbing ourselves of the excess that we could be having on this side. Who would say, God, I've had enough of your protection? Who would say, who would say, God, I just don't need any more blessings? You and I have been engineered for excess in all of the things of God. It's why when you read in Psalm 23, right, the psalmist writes, my cup runneth over. Everything about who God is is excessive. Everything about who God is is over the top. There is nothing about God that is measured. There is nothing. Limit is not a word that fits in to his realm. He is a God that does everything far and beyond. Ephesians 3.20, a favorite verse of ours here at the City Life Church, exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. He is a God of excess, and he created you and I to live this life with an insatiable appetite for who he is and everything from his kingdom. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, right? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is not just giving a warning against the excesses of alcohol abuse. He's not just giving a, a warning of what not to do. If, if that had been his only purpose, and that was part of his intent, but if that had been his only purpose, he would have stopped there, right? He would have said, don't do this. But he uses the example of how we give ourselves an excess to what we shouldn't do to set up the greater teaching, which is to say what you should be doing. He's saying, don't be intoxicated with something that man can make when you could be intoxicated with something that comes from heaven. When your life could be absolutely overflowing with my spirit. When your life could be so full of who I am that you could live your life every day saying, I can't eat another bite. You with me? I want to live my life so full of God that I am worried that I might explode. And God says, that's what I created you to experience. Quit giving yourself to all the other perversions that exist in this world. I created you with a capacity for excess. You were not made to be measured. Now release yourself and give yourself freely to things that are eternal. To things that are eternal. So we had one of those moments this week as a family. Where we just all week have just been, God, can you really be this big? Can you really be this good? Can you really just be this out of control? So you know we're doing this Faith Promise Initiative, right? If, if, if you call this your church home or thinking about it, you need to get one of these cards from one of the ushers, Faith Promise. It, it, the, 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 the title of it's important. It means that you pray and you ask God to give you a number. 
then you believe by faith that he's going to provide that number to you. And, and then you make a promise that when he does, or it might start coming in, in in small portions, it might not come in all at once, but the Holy Spirit will whisper to your heart, this is part of your faith promise. You make a promise that you give it to the faith promise initiative when you do. Make sense, right? There's a simplicity to it. And then there's three places that you can designate. Missions, building, or that WMBC is the Williamsburg campus. And then Mark 10, 27, the life verse for this series is on here. And we're believing God, we're believing God that by the end of this year, not promised, but collected, collected monies, $50,000 by the end of this year. We're believing that, that God's going to make a way. So when we started praying for the faith promise, Vanessa and I, so as I was praying, I really felt like the number that, that, that I was going to give through faith promise, right, which is already, you're already starting off on the wrong foot, right? So you're supposed to ask God. So the number I came to God and I said, God, I, I think I want to, I want to believe, believe you for $1,000. I don't have $100 to give extra. You with me? I'm with you. I don't, I don't have that in my budget. We don't have that kind of disposable income. And this is what God said to me. Really, that's all you have faith for, Fred, is $1,000. Okay, I thought you were merciful and gracious God, slow to anger. I found, I, you wrote that verse in here somewhere, right? So I'm talking to God, God, I don't, $1,000, that's a faith promise for me. I don't have $1,000. This is what I felt like God said to me. It's not an empty promise. You don't make a promise based on what you don't have. That's the th- it's a faith promise. You're supposed to ask me for the number. That's what you've been talking to the church about. You're supposed to ask me for the number. I'm going to give you a number, and then you're going to have faith for what I say to you. Sorry, right. you're right, you're right, you're right, God. You're right. So he says, do you think you can have faith for $5,000? I said, no, what else you got? <laughs> I said, all right, God, I can have faith for $5,000. If it's the number that you're giving to me, I can have faith for it. Right? It's the series that we did not too long ago. Human effort and response to a sovereign command is what produces a divine result. So God, if you're going to... So I talked to Vanessa. So we said, all right, if this is what God's speaking to us, then we're going to do a $5,000 faith promise. So we moved here in 2007. We bought a townhome up off of Denby Boulevard in Holly Mead. And if you've been tracking with the church for any amount of time, you know this part of the story. We found out two years later that it was built with toxic Chinese drywall. We had to move that. We put our life savings into that home to buy that, to come here, to, to, to on this big step for us and, 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 and coming and being a part of the City Life Church. And, and we were full, full of faith and excited about what God was going to do. And 24 months into it, what you're not expecting your story to be unfolding is that you've lost everything and you have to leave your home because it's going to make you sick. And you're on the verge of bankruptcy. Anybody here looking for that story? Yeah. No. We're not looking for that story. But that's been our story. It's been our story. We stopped paying on our mortgage in 2009. I brought a, a statement here for you, just in case there are any naysayers. You ever been the naysayer? He must be making that up. If you want to see it, you can see it right at the end of the service. What we owed on that house, we've not paid it on it since 2009, $233,733.81 and a negative escrow balance of $8,216.76. That was the end of May. On a house that's worth nada. We owed over $5,000 in attorney's fees and HOA back rent, right? I have suffered much in my life due to my own stupidity and ignorance. But it is one of the first times in my life that I have suffered in innocence. And I'm telling you, it's a better way to suffer. If you're going to suffer, let it be because God is doing something in your life. Job is not a book of suffering. Job is a book of blessing. And right from the get-go, we knew that God was going to do something in our lives through this situation because we picked the house that we knew that God spoke to us to get, right? All of that, we knew we were walking in God's will. And so we can't be surprised sometimes when it feels as though he's pulled the carpet out from under our feet because he wants to do something deep inside of us. So we've lost everything, and there we are. And so, so we, we started talking to Christy. Christy's in the church, right? Real estate agent extraordinaire. And so we said, Christy, can you help us do a short sale on this, on this property? No Bank of America homes have short sale, at least in this area. None. So we started the process and put it on the market in January. We had a contract on it within about an hour, right? And a few months into it, Bank of America says, we're, we're not going to short sale this home with Chinese drywall. We're not going to do it. We said, yes, you are, because God said that you were going to do it, right? 
So we didn't give up, right? We, we prayed and we did our part. We called and sent emails and did all the thing to the regulatory. We did, we did our part. You, sometimes you have to wait actively, right, in the midst of things. And so Wednesday of this week, we closed on that short sale that we were told could not happen, right? Not only that, but Bank of America forgave the, the hustle for about $70,000. Bank of America completely forgave the whole balance of the debt. You do the math from reading this. All of it, gone. The attorney's fees, all of that was owed, was paid by the person that bought that. Zero. Wednesday was a marker for us as a family. Marker. I'm telling you, it's good. And we really believe it's just the beginning. We believe that God's going to continue to use that situation to bring resources into our lives that we can in turn be generous with. All right? You're right. So the story gets better. You think, could it get better than that? Oh, I'm telling you, it's going to get better. Because we're talking, about, we're talking about, about, about greed, but in a good way. You with me? We're, we're talking about God doing things in our lives that are just be, beyond, cup overflowing. So this is a check right here for $4,000 that, that we got given to us at a closing where they were forgiving almost $200,000. How does that work? God, where can we buy more houses like that, right? So we had no money when we made that faith promise. Zero. But that's what a faith promise is. That's what a faith promise is. You don't have it. It's not an empty promise. It's not a people promise. It's, it's not a humanity promise. It's a faith promise, right? This is the check. I didn't want to deposit it because I wanted to bring it into this church. $4,000. We're depositing it into the bank, and then we're turning around $4,000. It's almost all of our faith. We had nothing, and two weeks later, almost our entire faith promise is in our hand. I'm just telling you, God is, you can clap. He's a God of excess. He's a God of more than enough. He's a God that, that, that wants you to walk in a place where your cup is overflowing. And for us, this is more than a faith promise. This is a first fruits offering. You with me? This is us saying to God, the first fruits from this, this tragedy that our families walked through, the first money to us, we're going to give it all back to you as a first fruits offering for everything else. We want to redeem the rest of the blessing that you have that you want to come to our family, which is going to be a part of the blessing of this church. So I'm just asking who here tonight, who here tonight is saying, God, I really, you know, I'm not really interested in you doing anything like that in my life. I don't really want to experience that part of who you are. Now, there might be part of us, there's a little bit of trepidation, right? I, I, okay, I want the end of the story. I just don't want the journey to get there, right? That's fair. That's fair. But the journey is part of the story. There ha that's part of the faith. That's part of trusting God. That's part of putting the full weight of our lives on him, where we say, God, no matter how you've got to get me there, I want everything that you have for me, especially the excess that you want to Reign over my life. So Dan Pathier sent me this, this email this week. I'm just asking tonight, right? Do you want a God of more than enough? So back in the 80s, he got this new job, and he was there training, and he's there on a tour, and he's in the freight elevator, and there's an a, a angry, crotchety, mean woman in the corner reading her Bible, right? Because that's most people's Christian witness, believe it or not, right? It is for many people. <clears throat> So Dan says, when I asked about her, I was told that she was an unpleasant person and all I needed to do was, was, was to just tell her the floor that I wanted. And I responded that no one was really unpleasant, especially someone reading a Bible, and that by the time we came back up, she would be calling me by my first name, right? And you know, everybody that worked there was going, yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. So I approached her and I asked her what book of the Bible she was reading and she sternly answered, I just started the book of Acts. Sounded just like that, I'm certain. Ask her if she wouldn't mind skipping ahead to Acts 2.42, which reads, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. She stood up from her chair and asked me if I was trying to make a point, and I told her that as Christians, we should eagerly share the Bible through friendly conversations, breaking bread together, and we most certainly should pray for one another. And all of a sudden, the expression on her face changed to something approaching a smiling face. That's good, isn't it? And she asked, did God send you here? 
I just said that our meeting wasn't an accident. And on the ride back up, just as I was getting off the elevator, she said, hey, brother, what's your name? And I told her what it was. So they developed a friendship, right? We're talking about a God of more than enough. Over the next several years, Dan said they developed this great friendship. And, and he gets on the elevator one day. He's in excruciating pain. He has a kidney stone. And he's leaning up against the side of the freight elevator, just excruciating pain. And if you've ever had one of those, you know what we're talking about. And then this woman in the back, right, reading her Bible, she, she says, hey, Dan, what's wrong? And she, she, she tells him, he tells her what's, what's wrong. And so she gets up, right? Dan says she's about this tall, right? So she stands up. She drags a crate from the back of the freight elevator, stands up on, right, stands up on it, and she puts her hand right on top of Dan's head, right in the freight elevator, right? That was not in the HR manual, right? Right in the, in the freight elevator and begins to pray a prayer of faith over his life to be healed from this kidney stone. People on the freight elevator are shouting amen and hallelujah, and in that moment, right away, God heals Dan from the kidney stone. Bam! Gone. And you say, how do you know that? Well, because Dan went to the urologist the next day. Gets his x-rays. Urologist comes in and says, I got I to get a new x-ray machine. You're going to have to come back. Why do you say that? Because, because when I took your x-ray, I can't, I can't find those kidney stones. Which that's happened before. Maybe you passed them. But, but I can't find all the scar tissue that's supposed to be in your body that's evidence of the kidney stones having been there. We think there's something wrong with our machine. No, there's just this little lady that's in a freight elevator and she just prays for people with her crate now, right? I'm telling you, some of the people that you don't like, God's put in your life for you to reach them, but, but there's a deposit in them that's going to reach back and touch you at some point in your future. I'm just, is there something inside of you that tonight would say, I don't, I don't really want to experience stuff like that? Then you don't want to experience God because that's all that He is. He is a God of more than you and I were engineered for excess. We were not made to be measured. Young couple in the church, get ready to have their first child, need a bigger car. They called up the church and said, can we give the car that we have this week to somebody in the church who's a single mom? There's another family in the church that's been working with a single mom, brought the title to the church this week. This single mom's going to get her car. She doesn't know it yet, but are you telling me there's not some? When we show up with the keys, do you think she's going to say, no, nah, I don't really want that? I don't know. We're going to be able to say, this is what God wants to do in your life forever. He wants your cup to be overflowing. He engineered us for excess. We were not made, come on, to be measured. Mark 10, 27, this is the verse for this whole series. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. That for us, that is the very essence of what it means to be a Pentecostal church in a modern day world is that we have an unshakable belief that God still does the impossible. That's still who he is. He hasn't changed and there should be something inside of us when we wake up every day that says, God, I want to live a life of excess for you. I want to live a life of excess for the things of your kingdom. I want to live a life where I am just insatiable when it comes to everything that you put in this book. So we've been digging around, and, and all of these, we call them the, the ten impossibilities. All of these were, were markers of the early church. Not just, not just one day something happened, but this defined the early church, the very first Pentecostal church, the first century church. And I'm not going to read that list, but that's the list that we're working on in this series. We've been tackling some, and we're going to start digging tonight into this idea of impossible growth. And maybe it seems as though the idea of impossible growth is disconnected from everything that we've been talking about tonight, and we're probably not going to answer that question for you tonight, but you're just going to have to come back next week to see how it fits together, right? Because I'm not above that being a little bit manipulative. I am telling you, there is a connection between impossible growth and the church getting a revelation of excess. 
the part of the church in the world today that is languishing, it's languishing because the world is not looking for a testimony of moderation. They can get that anywhere. They're looking for something that resonates to their passion for more deep inside of them, even though they don't know what it's about. That's why they give themselves excessively to all of these things that are destructive, not because God wants to root out their excess. Come on, God doesn't want to change that about who they are because that's how he made them. He's trying to redirect it over here into something that's life-giving and eternal. And the world is looking for a community of people that understands excess in the way that God intended. And I'm just saying tonight, we're going to be one of those churches in the world. We're going to be one of those churches. All right, so I want to talk about the big three. The big three of excess that we find in Scripture, which is the, which is the mutation. It's the, it's the aberration of the appetite that God wants us to have. And many of you already know where we're going. We're going to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John is one of the most, most direct-languaged books in the Bible. I mean, he, just, he does not mix words. He just, bam, this is truth. And so he just lays it out again and again. And he lays it out right here, starting in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? He says, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you are a liar. Right? That's how he writes this book. If you've not read this book, you, you need to read it. He's confrontational. For all that is in the world, and here it comes, the big three. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What's John saying there? He's saying you're giving yourself to the wrong excess. Now, I've always understood this when it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that, that John here is talking about our capacity for sin, that he's talking about the propensity of humanity for selfishness, right? You're born into this world. Nobody has to teach you how to be selfish. If you believe that, then just work in the nursery for a couple of weeks and we'll help you figure that out for you. But that's a different word in the Bible. That's pathos. Doing some study this week, that's the word that describes what this one book, this Greek interlinear Bible that has the Greek and then the English, and you can really see what the exact word is says that that's the word that describes the disease of the soul. Pathos, this, this, this part of you that just always wants to serve yourself. But it's a word that speaks to your potential. But there's another word that's often translated as lust or desire in the Bible. It's epithumia. And this means when you've gone beyond just kind of nurturing a thought and now you've begun to act on the desire. That's the word that John reaches when he writes this letter. He doesn't say the pathos of flesh and the pathos of the eye and the pride of life. He's not saying, I'm not talking about God judging you just because you might sin. That would be like us spanking our children every morning just because they might do something wrong. If you're a parent, you've probably wanted to do that a few times. I know that I have. But that's terrible parenting. What John's saying here is, hey, come on. It's epithumia. It's when you begin to give yourself to the desires of your human body. And the flesh here is not just the things of the world. He uses the word bios, which means your physical body. When you begin to give yourself over, when you let your body control you, when you begin to let your eyes control you, when you give yourself to the pride of life, I want to talk a little bit more about what those are on the next slide, but I want to read James 1, 14 through 15, because this is an important verse, and many of you are familiar with this. James 1. Oh, it's in this one here. James 1. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. It's not pathos, it's epithumia. Same word, right here. And then after desire has, has, has conceived, it's a powerful imagery, isn't it, of, of life being created inside of a person. When you, when you begin to, to, to have a relationship with that desire and something is conceived inside of you, it gives birth to sin. That's when you actually act out. That's the word hamatarlos in the Greek. It means to miss the mark. It's an archery term that you miss the, the bullseye. You begin to live your life and when you begin to miss the mark, you begin to do all the things that you're not supposed to do and you stop doing the things that you should. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sobering stuff, isn't it? John's saying, don't give your life to that. Not just because it is going to be destructive, 
but because you are going to miss out on the excess that God created you to taste. He wants you to be a person that's insatiable. He wants you to be a person, there's a part of you that's avarice, that's greedy, but greedy for God's grace, greedy for his goodness, greedy for a call of destiny to be spoken over your life. Just that, that relationships with the body of Christ that you just can't get enough. Come on. These are these three. If we were going to relist them in a language that, that maybe is a little bit more modern, let's update it. The, the, the lust of the flesh, it's unchecked physical pleasure. God created you with the capacity for physical pleasure. That's not something that came after Adam and Eve ate of the fateful fruit. Come on, they experienced pleasure before. God wants you to experience physical pleasure, but he wants you to experience it within the boundaries that he gives to you, not because he wants to rob you of pleasure, but because he wants to release you into the greater depths of pleasure. And if you're experiencing pleasure outside of the wisdom of God's word, you're just you're settling for less. That's the promise. Engineered for excess unchecked physical pleasure, just allowing the desires of your body to rule your life. Preoccupy, the, the lust of the eye is a, a preoccupation with the material world. That as you look out into the world, whether it be people, whether it be money, whether it be material possessions, the things that are going to pass away, right? Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's you have a preoccupation for things that are temporal. Hey, God created temporal things. He wants us to step into relationships. He wants us, right, to, 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 to know the joy of having material possession that we can steward so that there's opportunities to give some of it away but also to keep some just for our enjoyment because he just loves us that much. But when we allow material possessions to rule our lives, everything about us is just about having more. Come on, John says, you've crossed the line. What's the pride of life? The pride of life is a determined independence apart from God. Claire used to always come to us when she was little before she would ask a question. You've heard me share it before and she would say, you know, you know say no to me. And then she would ask, right? You know, you know, say no to me. Can I have some candy? We live our lives that way with God, right? We come to him, we say, you know, say no to me. There's, there's a part of us, if we're not careful, that says, God, I, I, I just want to live my life. I want to do it myself. And John says, hey, don't give yourself to that. Don't give yourself to that. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Come on, I haven't preached in two weeks. I have a lot to say. Matthew chapter 4. We see the big three. We're not going to do all of them tonight. I'm going I'm to hopefully do this one and one more. <clears throat> we see the big three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life all throughout Scripture. All throughout. Hopefully now that we've dug around in that, as you begin to read the Bible, you're going to see it over and over and over, and we see it right here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, right? He's 30 years old. He's beginning his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and, and he was led by the Spirit. That's what we were talking about before, right? Sometimes God leads us into difficult places. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God knew the devil was going to be there, and he said, all right, Jesus, this is how we're going to get your ministry started, right here. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's not just God stating the obvious. He wants us to know that Jesus was both fully God, but he was fully man. So you see all these statements in the Bible to remind us he, he, he was fully man. He was hungry. Then the tempter, that's the devil, approached him and said, he launches out with the big three. He comes at him first with the lust of the flesh. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If that had been you and I, we would have turned those things to bread on day two, right? And meat and cheese and all kinds of other stuff. 40 days, he had the power to do anything. No food, 40 days, 40 nights. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Here comes the pride of life. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, right? So now the devil begins to quote scripture back to him. He's saying, if you want to play that game, I can play that game too. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. What's the devil saying to him? The devil saying to him, hey, if you're the Messiah, let's see what you got. Don't, don't, if you're the Messiah, you, you get to do what you want in the world, right? God gave you all this power. He gave you all this authority. Why don't, why don't you just, why don't you, why don't you use it? 
God's not here. The Father's not here. If I had sent you into this world, I would let you use your power however you wanted to use it. The pride of life. Determined independence from God. All right, here's the last one, right? It's the big three. We shouldn't be surprised. This is how the devil comes at him. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world with their splendor. What's the only one left, right? The lust of the eyes. So here he goes. He's just, he lays it out there for him. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and immediately angels came and began to serve him. It's the big three. It's how the devil comes at you. It's how he comes at me. It's how he's been coming at people from the beginning of time, as we'll see next week. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He, he understands that you were engineered by God for excess, and so that's how he takes advantage of you. Because there's a part of you, when, when you're doing these things that you shouldn't do, that there's a part of you that feels right because you're giving yourself to this, this appetite, and that's what makes it so deceptive, right? That's how the devil works with us. That's why he... he it's so alluring because it has a hint of truth in it, and that's how he draws us away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So Samson, if you got your Bibles, turn to Judges 14. This is in the time of Judges when God is raising up people supernaturally to defend Israel, to help them take full possession of the promised land. So we know Samson, right, from his birth, he was set apart through a Nazarite vow. We're going to talk about what that is in just a minute, but he has incredible strength, right? He could be in the movie Avengers. He's, this, he's that guy. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman. Here, right, right, which one is this? The lust of the what? He saw. Lust of the eyes. He saw a young Philistine woman there. Went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah now get her for me as my wife, and you know, say no to me. So we know right out of the gate that this is something he's not supposed to be doing because it's a Philistine woman. Not that God cares about the, the ethnicity of mission. That's a big par- problem in the church, and it still is today that people use these verses to say this person can't marry that. That's not what this is about. The reason why God put a restriction on these cross-cultural marriage in that day because those people every time were worshipers of false God and that's the principle that matters to us in marriage. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It matters who's your God. The New Testament talks about not being unequally yoked. This, this woman did not worship the one true God. So it was, there was a, a prohibition against him to marry this woman. But come on, the lust of the eyes. Oh, I see and I want. He's preoccupied with the material world in an unhealthy way. And this is what temptation always does. It will require you at some point to compromise yourself. That's how you know. That's how you know. At some point, it will ask you to do something you know you should not do. And this is where he's crossed the line. All right, let's jump over to verse 8. After some time when he returned to get her... He left the road to see the lion's carcass. Now, we're not reading the whole story. If you've not read the story, you should dig around in this this week. It's a powerful story. But when they were on their way with his mother and, 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 his, and his father to, to go get his bride, a lion jumps out, jumps out to attack them. And, and Samson grabs this lion and just tears it apart with this supernatural strength that God has given to him. So, so sometime later, he's passing back down the same road. And he returned to get there. And he left the road to see the lion's carcass. You know what this is about already beginning to happen in his life. This is the pride of life. I want to see what I can do and he gets there and lo and behold guess what happens there is a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass and he scooped some of the honey into his hands oh come on you're you're getting hungry for honey right now just thinking about it what's this happening right here this is the lust of the it's the lust of the flesh so we got the lust of the eyes we got the the lust of the flesh that's happening here why is it why is it wrong for him to eat this honey because it came out of a dead carcass now, we know from studying this text that he was a, a Nazarite. He had taken a Nazarite oath, and there was lots of things that were a part of that, but the three hallmarks of every Nazarite oath were the same. You could not consume any intoxicating beverages. 
You could not cut your hair as a sign of your oath, and you could not come in contact with anything dead, not even a relative. It was a strict part of the Nazarite oath. So here we see, right? Here he is again. He's placed in a position of compromise. The lust of the flesh. He sees the honey, and he knows that he's doing something that he should not do, but he's begun to live a life of unchecked, unchecked physical desire. He scoops the honey up in his hands, and when he returned to his father and his mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it, and he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. This is another place where we begin to realize we're stepping into a place of sin as we're willing to compromise other people, and we don't care, and we don't care. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, all right, the pride of life. Come on, it's all throughout Scripture. Here we go. So he meets this young lady named Delilah, not the lady from the radio show, but this is a different Delilah. 16. Christy was the only person in the room who got that joke. Or she was the only person who thought it was funny. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. 16. Because she nagged him day after day. I'm going to stay away from that because that's trouble. And pled with him until she wore him out. He told her the truth, right? So he's entered into this conversation. She's saying, right, she's been hired by his enemies. Find out the secret of his strength. And so the first one is, you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings. The next time, right, it was, it was new ropes. And then the next time it was weave the seven braids, right, and into the loom. And, and then so, so finally, right, he, and then they come. And then he, you know, breaks free. And she's like, oh, you're toying with me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's just see. There's no good quotes come from a chick flick court. They don't. They don't. They don't. My hair, he says, has never been cut. That's important that we understand the story. This has nothing to do with Samson stepping into a place of trusting Delilah. It has everything to do with him finally giving himself over to the pride of life. You're going to see why we know this to be true. It's right here in the text. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders, come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. And the Philistine leaders came to her and brought the money with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids of his head. In this way, she rendered him helpless. And his strength left him. Now, this is how we know it's not trust. It's the pride of life. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. It says, when he woke from his sleep, this is what he said. Now, he knows what she's going to do, right? Because every other time he's told her something, she's done that thing to him, right? If this had been the only time that it happened, we'd be left wondering, what was this about? That's why all the rest of the text is given to us. He knows that she's going to shave his head. He knows that, that she's going to do whatever he tells her. So when he awoke from his sleep, listen to what it says. I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. He had finally given himself over fully to the pride of life. I can do it myself. I don't need your help. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, just in case you're wondering, is this story really about the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life? It keeps going just to make sure we understand what we're trying to be taught. Verse 21, the Philistines seized him. Listen, listen, it's right here. They gouge out his eyes, the lust of the eye. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and they forced him to grind grain in the prison. So there was a big grinding stone. He was like a beast of burden that was attached to some large tree trunk looking like pole, and he lived his life pushing this thing around, grinding the grain, the lust of the flesh, this body that he once adored, this body that was once his playground, this physical body of his, which was once his way of giving himself to excess, had now become the means of his bondage, and that's what the lust of the flesh will always bring us into. So where's the pride of life, you might be asking? If you jump over to verse 28, you can read all the rest of the story, but he's there in a stadium being made a spectacle of. 
And this is the last prayer that he prays. He called out to the Lord. Listen to what it says. Lord God, please remember me. Please remember me. When we give ourselves fully to the pride of life, God's willing to give us what we ask for if it's what we need to finally step into a place of redemption. He's willing to give you a desperation revelation if that's what you need to finally come home. See, this idea of the pride of life, this idea of, God, I don't want you to be a part of my life because I want to give myself to all the excesses that I want to pursue. There will be a point in all of our lives where we will wake up one day like Samson did and we will feel to the depth of our soul absolutely alone and it's devastating. So he has been living out his days. Oh God, does he even remember who I am? The lust of the flesh, it will always lead to bondage. You think you're controlling your desires, but you will wake up one day and realize that they are controlling you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. You might think there's just no harm in dreaming. There's no harm in looking. There's no harm in fantasizing. And I'm not just talking about in sexuality, but I'm talking about with wealth and material possessions. You might say there's just no harm with that being the constant thought process of my life. But I'm telling you, if you give yourself to that journey, if you give yourself to that, then something tragic happens to the spiritual part of who you are. There is a loss of vision for eternity. There is a gouging out of your spiritual eyes that the devil just can't wait to inflict upon you and I. He wants us to stumble through this world with no vision for eternity. He wants us to stumble through this world with no vision for divine purpose. He wants us to stumble through this world with no capacity to dream a God-sized dream of serving others. He wants us to live our lives with our spiritual eyes gouged out. And He wants us to wake up one day and say, I don't even know if God knows my name. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. It's the big three, people. It's the big three. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. And it's the pride of life. And it's the temptation that's waiting for you outside those doors, just like it's waiting for me outside those doors. But we don't have to step up into the face of that temptation, cowering and afraid, because that's why we started with Jesus' story first, because there's a way that we can step into the face of those temptations and say, not me, not me, not today, not today. God engineered you for excess. I, I grew up in a church where everything about my church experience was, was sit down, be quiet, don't turn around. We, we're going to come quiet and we're going to leave quiet. I'm not saying there's not quiet moments. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I can just tell you as a child early on, there was something inside of me that says, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is how I'm supposed to live. And so for the first 23 years of my life, I just gave, I'm not saying that this church is full. I gave myself to the temptations. I'm just saying you, the church has a responsibility to step in, come on, and set us up for success. We don't want to be a church that, that, that runs after God in spite of everything that we've done wrong. Come on, you with me? But I gave myself to a life of excess for the first 23 years of my life. Why? Because there was something inside of me that says, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is who I'm supposed to be. And I was absolutely right. Which is the problem with many of your stories. You are too. We've just been giving ourselves to the wrong stuff. So God says, would, would you not come and let me help you begin to see how you can give yourself to excess of love and mercy and goodness and grace and celebration and relationship, gorging yourself on Scripture, feasting upon prayer, walking away from moments of generosity that says, I just can't wait till I get a chance to give something 
else away, that even if we were to stand in a stadium and, and give a story and see 50,000 people come to Christ, that we would wake up the next day and say, God, I want to see 100. That you and I were not made to be measured. You weren't made that way. And we want to be a church that helps you find your God-given destiny to drink deep from eternal life. Come on, stand with me as we worship. So, Father, we step into this moment tonight of worship that we know that it's sacred. We know that this moment, that you've been preparing our hearts for this moment, that, that, that for, 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 for some people here tonight, God, for some people here tonight, this is a turning point for them. How many times did you, did you go to Samson? And we know you did because you're a loving God. How many times did you go to him and try to give him a chance to turn it around? We know, God, that there are people in here tonight that they have given themselves to the lust of the flesh. And you're saying to them, this is your, this is your opportunity to go down a different road. You might be here tonight, and you have this idea of the, the lust of the eyes, this idea of a preoccupation with the material world, that, that tonight, tonight, where God's giving you an opportunity to go down a different road. That you might be here tonight and this idea of the pride of life, you get it because that's what you've been saying to God. God, I don't want you to be a part of my life. He's given you an opportunity tonight to go down a different road. I know, I, I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy to be conspicuous. I know it's not easy to step into a place of saying, I think some of those things speak to me. But I'm just telling you, if you're willing, if, I'm just, if you are willing to give yourself to courage just for a moment, I am telling you that God can do something in your life that is absolutely like a cup that's overflowing. You don't have to leave here the same way that you came in. So we're going to worship through this song together. Come on, and there's lots of room up here. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you come. Stand in his presence. Whatever you need to confess to him, whatever you need to say, however you need to say, I'm sorry. And I'm telling you, he is waiting to give you something in turn that will transform your life. It might be an addiction that you need to be set free from. Come on, you can come with an expectation that God's going to set me free tonight. It might be pain. It might be bitterness. It might be hurt. It might be sorrow. It might be despair. If you want someone to pray with or somebody on either side, you can go up to them if you want to talk with someone. I'm telling you, do not, don't just let this be another song. Let it be a moment of excess and accessing God's grace. Come on, let's worship together. The precious blood on Jesus Christ redeemed. 